The year was 1729, and the colonial government of the British colony of Pennsylvania was in need of a place to meet. Construction would begin on Chestnut Street in Philadelphia in 1732. This structure would be designed to house the Pennsylvania Assembly, the governor's office, the colony's Supreme Court, and a large hall for banquets and celebrations. When the Pennsylvania State House was completed in 1756, the building would soon be one of the largest in America. Over the next half century, it would become a busy place frequented by names you will know well, like George Washington, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and so many other founding fathers of the United States of America. By 1800, the United States had moved its capital to Washington, D.C. After becoming the second state admitted to the Union in 1787, Pennsylvania would eventually move its seat of government to Lancaster in 1789 and by 1812, Harrisburg. To raise funds for a new state house, the state legislature proposed tearing down the old state house and selling plots of land on Philadelphia's Chestnut Street. The city of Philadelphia was outraged by the idea of losing the building and its surrounding green space. They would offer the state $70,000, but state lawmakers refused to take less than $150,000. Philadelphia launched a five-year fundraising campaign, and in 1818, the building became the property of the city. But it's in the 1820s when word reaches Philadelphia that America's guest, the Marquis de Lafayette, would be visiting their city as part of his 13-month tour of the 24 United States at the time. The old state house was the logical place to host the American war hero. The scramble was on to make the building suitable for such an honored guest. That dusty old building, which just a few years ago seemed like it was doomed, had housed artist Charles Wilson Pills Museum and natural history specimens since 1802. And on the second floor of the old state house in the assembly room, you could find such things as the skeleton of a mastodon mixed with portraits of founding fathers. It was a bit of a cluster. It took some cleaning and the moving of a lot of furniture, but on September 28, 1824, Lafayette would be celebrated in the old Pennsylvania State House, or as the general and others preparing for his visit began referring to it as the Hall of Independence. It was a catchy and appropriate name for the old building, one that caught on and lives on today as Independence Hall, the birthplace of the United States of America. This is God's Favorites, the Minisode. Ironically, a building that still stands today as a symbol of freedom from the rule of England and over the 13 American colonies was built to house essentially a British government. The area was settled in the early 1600s by the Swedish. It was named New Sweden. The New Sweden Company, formed by Dutch, Swiss, and German traders, settled along the Delaware River. But in 1681, King Charles II of England would grant a charter to William Penn for all of Pennsylvania and the Delaware River Valley. Penn, a Quaker who had ensured that his charter guaranteed freedom of religion, would rename the city Philadelphia, Greek for brotherly love. In 1729, a committee of three men, Thomas Lawrence, John Kearsley, and Andrew Hamilton, began selecting a site, acquiring plans, and contracting a company for construction of the building. 
After some disagreement over the design had to be settled by lawmakers, the state house would be constructed with a central building, a bell tower, and steeple, and two attached smaller wings. The tip of the steeple was over 168 feet above the ground. It would have a red brick facade and be designed, another irony alert, in what we would know as Georgian-style architecture. That's right. This symbol of American independence was built in a style that was popular between 1714 and 1830 during the reign of King George I, II, III, and IV. At one time, the bell tower housed the state house bell, or old state house bell, and today we know this symbol of independence as the Liberty Bell. Beginning in May of 1775, the Pennsylvania State House would become the principal meeting place for representatives of the 13 British American colonies, known as the Second Continental Congress. In June of that year, they would make two decisions that would have a major impact in the life of the 17-year-old Marquis de Lafayette, who was, of course, still in France at this point. The Continental Congress meeting in the building's assembly room would appoint General George Washington as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. Just over a month later, Congress would select Benjamin Franklin to be the first Postmaster General over what would become the United States Post Office. Washington would become a father figure to the Marquis, and Franklin would later become the United States' first minister to Lafayette's home country, France. And Franklin, alongside Lafayette, would become an eventual force in shaping France's support for the American cause. What started with the spark of being taxed without representation grew into a fire for the 13 colonies who wanted to be able to have their own voice in Parliament. They were, after all, British. And as a result, all 13 colonies sent representatives to Philadelphia in June of 1776 for the second meeting of the Continental Congress. Then, starting on July 4, 1776, in the Pennsylvania State House, the Hall of Independence, a document created by Thomas Jefferson, edited by Ben Franklin, and approved by the Continental Congress would light a fire in many, including the Marquis. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words lifted from the preamble of the Declaration of Independence seemed to hang in the soul of Lafayette until his death, and of course would inspire Lafayette's own declaration, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen in France. They certainly lit a fire in Lafayette's soul. To go fight for a cause on soil foreign to him, making him a hero in America, and often put him in the crosshairs of the ruler of his beloved France. Massachusetts' John Hancock would place the first signature on the Declaration that day. Many of the delegates would not sign it until August 2nd, and the final signature was New Hampshire delegate Matthew Thornton on November 4th, 1776. Fifty-six men, representing all 13 colonies, would eventually sign it, and the revolution was on. All but eight of the signers had been born in America. The youngest signer was 26 years old, and Ben Franklin, at 70, was the oldest. About half were lawyers, while others were farmers and merchants. Almost all were men who financially had a lot to lose. They would pledge their lives, fortunes, and honor to each other. From a live standpoint, fate was kind, as none of the 56 would die at the hands of the British, although four would be captured. After the fact, almost all were less rich. About a third would serve as militia officers and had helped finance the militias themselves out of their own pockets. 
1777, the British took Philadelphia, forcing the Continental Congress to abandon the State House. The group would instead meet in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for one day, and then nine months in York, Pennsylvania. It was during this time that they would pass the Articles of Confederation, establishing a new form of government. The Patriots would retake Philadelphia and meet in the old State House from 1778 to 1783. In June of 1787, Congress would return again to the old State House to revise the Articles of Confederation, but instead decided to write a new constitution. Rhode Island was the only state not in attendance. In an effort to keep the deliberations a secret, the windows of the building were closed. This is in June. Hot and sweaty. And the convention lasted until September. Declaration author Thomas Jefferson was the U.S. ambassador to France at this time, but kept in contact with Constitution writer James Madison. You have to wonder if Jefferson, also the inventor of such things as a polygraph, a dumbwaiter, a macaroni machine, might have dreamed up air conditioning had he been in the building, but alas, no. In the meantime, the Founding Fathers were trying to convince George Washington to stay in the game, even though he wanted to return to Mount Vernon and live a quiet life. He thought his role in the battle for freedom was over, but others disagreed and felt he was desperately needed in Philadelphia. Persuaded to attend by James Madison, he was elected president of the convention. A strong believer in a national government, he would oversee many arguments and kept order during a stressful four months. You see, the Founding Fathers were never on the same page. John Adams and Thomas Paine wrote persuasive documents pushing for a new constitution. Patrick Henry was opposed until it was agreed that a Bill of Rights would be added, and then he pushed for ratification. And they were in stifling heat. And maybe the heat was the catalyst for finishing all this up because the Constitution was completed on September 17th, taking effect on March 4th, 1789. At that time, Congress moved to New York City and selected Lafayette's friend, mentor, and father figure, George Washington, as the first president of the United States. Independence Hall would undergo a number of changes beginning in the 1780s. Because of structural problems, the original steeple was demolished in 1781. The wings were demolished in 1812 and replaced with larger buildings. It was that age-old debate in 1812 that led to the near destruction of the national landmark. Was the original Pennsylvania State House old or historic? A group of lawmakers obviously saw it as an old building that was taking up space that they could use. The full proposal would be to demolish Independence Hall divide the land into lots and sell both the lots and salvage material to the highest and best bidders. No doubt some were upset with the idea of tearing down the historic structure, but others did not want to lose the adjoining green space, which they viewed as an inner city park. Whatever drove them to raise the $150,000, they saved so much more than just a building, though, and grass and trees. Because Independence Hall was saved by the city of Philadelphia, Its place in historic moments live on. The building has been a witness to some of history's biggest events, not just those connected to the Revolutionary War. On Saturday, April 22nd, 1865, the Lincoln Special, the funeral train carrying the body of assassinated President Abraham Lincoln, arrived in Philadelphia. A hearse carried his body to the assembly room in the East Wing of Independence Hall. That evening, there was a private viewing for honored guests and mourners. The following day, a line began forming at 5 a.m. 
Over 300,000 mourners viewed the body of the president, some waiting for hours. The next morning, Abraham Lincoln's body would begin its return voyage to its final destination, Springfield, Illinois. Meeting at Independence Hall on June 17, 1915, President William Howard Taft presided over the League to Enforce Peace. They proposed an international governing body where participating nations would jointly use economic and military forces against any one of their countries making war against another country. This league would dissolve in 1923. In 1948, Independence Hall's interior was restored to its original state. That same year, though still owned by the city, it became part of Independence National Historic Park, established by Congress. The park includes the neighborhoods of Old City and Society Hill and is nicknamed America's most historic square mile. The famed cracked Liberty Bell sits across the street in Liberty Center. But the centerpiece of the park is still the building referred to by the Marquis de Lafayette as the Hall of Independence. 19th century French writer and diplomat André-Nicolas Levasseur accompanied the Marquis de Lafayette in 1824 and 1825 on his tour of the United States. This is a summation about what Lavasseur wrote about Lafayette's arrival in Philadelphia and Independence Hall. General Lafayette arrived to the thunder of cannon on a plane outside the city and was greeted by civil and military officers and about 6,000 uniformed volunteer militia. It appeared that everyone who was physically able was there to receive him. Stages had been built on both sides of the street as they entered to hold the spectators. Tradesmen lined the streets outside of their shops with banners and portraits of Washington and Lafayette with the words, To their wisdom and courage, we owe the free exercise of our industry. A printing press was set up in the street along with a banner that read, Liberty of the Press, the surest guarantee of the rights of man. The schools were out with teachers and students holding ribbons bearing a portrait of Lafayette. The procession was led by a detachment of cavalry, followed by the nation's guest in a carriage drawn by six horses, along with carriages carrying other dignitaries. Following were four large carts loaded with 40 revolutionary soldiers each. These veterans of liberty, whose eyes were half extinguished by age, still poured forth tears of joy at their unexpected happiness to again see their ancient companion in arms. A long column of infantry was at the back of the procession, after passing under 13 triumphal arches, we stopped in front of the State House, resting for a moment while dignitaries entered. The general entered to a 13 gun salute and was led to the foot of the statue of George Washington. In this place where the Declaration of Independence was signed, the Marquis was greeted by local officials and workers with hardened hand alongside with clergy, children, soldiers, and sailors. While standing in Independence Hall on that September day in 1824, Lafayette would marvel at what had been accomplished with these words. Here within these sacred walls by a council of wise and devoted patriots and in a style worthy of the deed itself was boldly declared the independence of these vast United States, which, while it anticipated the independence and, and I hope the Republican independence of the whole American hemisphere, has begun for the civilized world the era of a new and of the only true order founded on inalienable rights of man. The practicability, the advantages of which are every day admirable, demonstrated by the happiness and prosperity of your populous city. The Marquis Older and Wiser would go on to remind them 
in his own way of something that's been repeated many times to the point that it's a colloquialism in America that freedom is not free. Here, sir, was planned the formation of our virtuous, brave, revolutionary army and the providential inspiration received that gave the command of it to our beloved matchless Washington. But these and many other remembrances are mingled with deep regret for the numerous contemporaries, for the great and good men whose loss we have remained to mourn. It is to their services, sir, to your regard for their memory and to your knowledge of the friendships I have enjoyed that I refer the greater part of the honors here and elsewhere received, much superior to my individual merit. Following his visit to Philadelphia, this quote would appear in the Saturday Evening Post on October 16, 1824. Everything is Lafayette, whether it be on our heads or under our feet. We wrap our bodies in Lafayette coats during the day and repose between Lafayette blankets at night. We have Lafayette bread, Lafayette butter, Lafayette beef, Lafayette vegetables, and of every description, from the common turnip relish to the most dainty dish of celery, together with various other Lafayette articles too tedious to mention. Even the ladies distinguish their proper from their common kisses under the title Lafayette smooches. We can only speculate at what the Marquis would think of the massive city stretching out before him if he were standing on the steps of Independence Hall today. During his first visit in 1777, it was the largest city in the U.S. with a population of 40,000. Nowadays, that population would fit inside the city of Brotherly Love's National Football League Stadium with over 27,000 empty seats still remaining. During his last visit in 1824, the Population had grown to over 63,000 people. Today, there are over 1.5 million people in Philadelphia. But to see the Hall of Independence still standing would surely please him. And even with all its struggles and blemishes, you have to believe that Lafayette would certainly be proud to see this country, so many Americans, Frenchmen, and a younger French nobleman fought so hard to create, and how it still stands God's Favorites is a history podcast where we talk about some of the people in history who were God's favorites or at least thought they were. This is our mini-sode to wrap up our Lafayette series. As you know, we do a series, and then at the end of that series, we'll do a little mini-sode. And those are usually written by my friends who want to get involved in the world of podcasting. So this one was written by my former colleague, co-worker, Mike Taylor. So thank you so much, Mike. We appreciate it. Our sources today come from constitutional facts national archives the national park service the saturday evening post auguste lavasseur's lafayette in america in 1824 and 1825 translated by john d godman with a few extra sources coming from mike duncan's hero of two worlds thanks to everyone who has joined our patreon page to help donate money that money goes of course to books streaming costs licensing or distribution cost you can find us on patreon under my handle of melissa fairlady And of course, you could also look up God's Favorites, a history podcast, or join us on TikTok. And I hope you'll join us in two weeks for our next episode. It may not be a series. I'm still trying to work out how long it's going to be, but we're going to be taking an in-depth look into composer Stephen Sondheim's life. See you next time, friends.